Get your daily news fix by listening to The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. It's like The Daily Show, but for your ears. And studies show ears are great for listening. And who are we to deny science? Trevor Noah and the world's fakest news team tackle the biggest stories in news, politics, and pop culture. Subscribe to The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition, for highlights and extended interviews available Tuesday through Friday mornings on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your ears on a podcast. And now... Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about many of the underlying reasons that healthcare in America is so expensive, and how those who benefit from the status quo work to keep it that way. Clips today come from Ring of Fire, a TED Talk by Matthias Mullenbeck, Planet Money, Counterspin, the Tom Hartman Program, and Citations Needed. Your latest story is part of a series where you're examining um, really just questions of waste in the medical industry. Just recap for us some of the the big elements of this. Well, Sam, I'm trying to kind of recast the way we look at all this healthcare spending in this country. I mean, one of the first things to think about is that you know, we spend a lot of money on healthcare, and that's my money and your money and the money of taxpayers and all the people getting the treatment are the ones who are paying for the care. And experts estimate that as much as a third of all the money that we're spending on healthcare is wasted. One report by the Institute of Medicine put that number at $765 billion a year wasted. So, I've been on a quest to try and identify as many examples of it as I can. Now, we should be clear that when we talk about, uh, and, and we have the most expensive healthcare in the world, we, we spend more, uh, than, uh, than, than governments normally do when they take care of their entire population. That's only part of, uh, or I'd say when they have the, uh, the majority of the responsibility for, uh, paying for healthcare. When we talk about waste, like, is this, I mean, just put that in context. Like what, when we say waste, is someone making money off that waste? Or well, is it yeah, just... I mean, I'm looking at it from the point of view of the patient or the people paying the bills. And this is money that, you know, experts would say does not need to be spent. So from our perspective, it's waste. But of course, you know, this is also the money that's fueling the profits and the revenue of the industry. So for the drug companies, this is their revenue. For the hospitals, this is their revenue. So, you know, the industry doesn't see it as waste, but I'm looking at it from the consumer side, and it is wasted spending. So we're looking at it from the perspective of how much health do you get for your dollar? And if uh, 20 to 30% of that dollar has nothing to do with your health, but has to do with procedures or has to do with just ways of doing business or ways of of marketing or, or whatever it is, then it's a waste from our perspective. And ultimately, um, there has to be some other entity involved in this process to curb the waste, right? Because uh, there's, for instance, we, we, you and I spoke about uh, the expiration of, of drugs and how there is uh, a lot of reason to believe that when we looked at, uh, at that the drugs, certain drugs can't expire. And they don't in any meaningful uh, sense of the word. Um, but others uh, certainly have uh, much longer times in which they are um, 
they are uh, effective and that drugs can't necessarily turn dangerous. The, from our perspective, I mean, there's no, there's no manufacturers out there who are going to say like, Hey, we heard Marshall Allen's piece and we have decided to change our business practices. Yeah. We, we decided that, you know what? We are selling too many of these drugs and you shouldn't be throwing so many of them away. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, you know, it's unlikely that that's probably going to happen on its own. Um, you know, in this, uh, in, that reminds me of this current story I did really looked at the way eye drops are too large for our eyes and vials of cancer drugs are much larger than they need to be. And in both cases, that results in a lot of wasted liquid medicine that's costing us a lot of money. But with the eye drop example, it's particularly interesting because, you know, your eye can only hold a certain amount of liquid in it. And they make eye drops. Many eye drops are two or three times bigger than what your eye can even contain. So when that liquid runs down your face or you have to wipe it off your cheek after you put in an eye drop, it's not because you missed. It's because the eye drop is probably just too big for your eye. So back in the early 90s, the drug company Alcon created what they called a micro drop. It was a small eye drop that was able to, um, you know, eliminate any waste. It worked just as well as the bigger eye drop. This was for a glaucoma. And it was less irritating because um, it was a smaller drop. So it had less irritant in it. And the drug company ended up doing a study showing that it was effective, showing that it would reduce waste. But when it came to bringing it to market, they decided not to do it because they were concerned about how it would affect their profits. And so this, this is going back to your point about is the industry just going to change itself? You know, they're going to do what they're incentivized to do. And what they really want to do is, is bring in revenue and make money. And, you know, when patients and consumers don't even know about all this waste, it's pretty hard for us to say that it needs to stop. So, all right, let's, and, 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 and certainly the waste comes in, in, in a lot of different ways. Let's, let's walk through this because we can also have like a procedural waste too, right? I mean, uh. Sure. So, you know, there's, there's so many different examples. I mean, I looked at some different ones in this series. Um, like with procedures, you know, I didn't, I didn't dig into that in this particular series of stories, but, um, you know, a lot of the operations that are performed are not necessary. Um, you know, a lot of the stents that are put into people's hearts or vascular stents that are put into people's legs, uh, they find that those are unnecessary. Um, looking at screening, I mean, a lot of mammograms are not necessary. The PSA test uh, for prostate cancer has now, the recommendations are that there's not evidence that shows that it's more beneficial than it is harmful. But there's still lots of doctors out there recommending PSA tests. And these have different recommendations different for different age groups. Um, I recommend people check out the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force because that's a group of volunteer experts who review the evidence for screening, and then they show which ones are recommended based on evidence and which ones are not. Um, in my stories, I looked at um, one of the stories looked at the perfectly good things, brand new, unexpired, in their original packaging that hospitals throw away. So I went up to a, a warehouse in Maine um, where it was filled, a 15,000-square-foot warehouse filled floor-to-ceiling with pallets and shelves of hospital supplies and hospital equipment. I saw one pallet of um, uh, boxes of sutures, and each box of sutures cost a couple hundred dollars. I mean, these are boxes, these are very 
specialized stitches that are used in the operating room. And there were pallets, pallets of them just having been discarded from a hospital. I looked at drugs being thrown away in nursing homes. You know, nursing homes prescribe drugs um, to patients, and then the patient has the drug discontinued. It's, a, it's in a sterile package. It was, it was dispensed by a pharmacist. They just take those, pop them out of the sterile packaging, and flush them down the toilet. But in some states, like Iowa, they send them back to a pharmacist, and they redistribute them to uninsured patients who can't afford their medication. So you look all, all around us, when you start looking and start asking people, this wasted healthcare spending is everywhere. Uh, let's talk about um, just briefly about the the, the cancer drug uh, that is a, a liquid drug that is that is wasted. Yeah. So in my story, I really looked at. I could have looked at a lot of them, but the one I really looked at is called Herceptin, and Herceptin is mostly used for breast cancer treatment. It's made by a drug company called Genentech. And up until earlier this year, it was dispensed in a multi-use vial. That just means that it was a larger vial that could be used by more than one patient. And that way, there wasn't as much waste associated with it, because if one patient didn't use the whole bottle, they could use the rest of the drug for the next patient. Now, this is a really expensive drug. Each milligram of the drug costs about $9, and the typical patient might use 330 milligrams of the drug. So you're looking at a lot of money per treatment for the drug, um, you know, say around $3,000 per treatment. Right. And they would do a treatment every, say, 21 days. Now, Genentech decided instead of using the multi-use vial, they would switch and do a single-use vial. And the single-use vial is only 150 milligrams. So I know I'm asking you to do a lot of math here with me, but the point is if you have a typical patient who uses about 330 milligrams and they only distribute it in 150 milligram single-use vials, you end up using 450 milligrams, which means 120 milligrams is left over from that patient's treatment, and that drug just gets thrown in the trash can, and that bill for the drug gets sent to the patient. So in a case like that, you're looking at you know upwards of around $1,000 worth of waste being wow. billed to the patient just for that single treatment. And so when they made this announcement, the cancer care community went bananas. I mean, on message boards online, pharmacists and cancer care people around the country were saying, how can they do this? Don't they know that making this change is going to lead to an incredible amount of expense just in wasted medicine being billed to patients? It's 4 a.m. in the morning. I'm waking up in a Boston hotel room and can only think of one thing. Tooth pain. One of my ceramic inlays fell off the evening before. Five hours later, I'm sitting in a dentist's chair, but instead of having a repair of my inlay so that I can get rid of my pain, the dentist pitches me on the advantages of a titanium implant surgery. Ever heard of that? <laughs> it essentially means to replace a damaged tooth by an artificial one 
that is screwed into your jaw. Estimated costs for the implant surgery may add up to 10,000 US dollars. Replacing the ceramic inlay head before would come at 800 US dollars. Was it my health or the money that could be earned with me that was the biggest concern for my dentist? As it turned out, my experience wasn't an isolated case. A study by an US national newspaper estimated that in the United States, up to 30% of all surgical procedures, including stand and pacemaker implantations, hip replacements, and uterus removals, were conducted, although other non-surgical treatment options had not been fully exploited by the physician in charge. Isn't that figure shocking? Numbers may be slightly different in other countries, but what it means is that if you go to a doctor in the U.S., you have a not insignificant chance to be subject of a surgical intervention without being the immediate need for it. Why is this? Why are some practitioners incentivized to run such unnecessary procedures? Well, perhaps it is because healthcare systems itself incentivize in a non-ideal way towards applying or not applying certain procedures or treatments. As most healthcare systems reimburse practitioners in a fee-for-service-based fashion on the number and kind of treatments performed, it may be this economic incentive that tempts some practitioners to rather perform high-profit surgical treatments instead of exploring other treatment options. Although certain countries started to implement performance-based reimbursement anchored on quality and efficacy metrics, overall, there's very little in today's healthcare system's architecture to incentivize practitioners broadly to actively prevent the appearance of a disease in the first place and to limit the procedures applied to a patient to the most effective options. So how do we fix this? What it may take is a fundamental redesign of our healthcare system's architecture, a complete rethinking of the incentive structure. What we may need is a healthcare system that reimburses practitioners for keeping their customers healthy, instead of almost only paying for services once people are already sick. What we may need is a transformation from today's system that largely cares for the sick to a system that cares for the healthy to change our current sick care approach into a true healthcare approach. It is a paradigm shift from treating people once they have become sick to preserving the health of the healthy before they get sick. This shift may move the focus of all those involved, from doctors to hospitals to pharmaceutical and medical companies, on the product that this industry ultimately sells. Health. Imagine the following. What if we redesign our healthcare system into one that does not reimburse practitioners for the actual procedures performed on a patient, but rather reimburses doctors, hospitals, pharmaceutical and medical companies for every day a single individual is kept healthy and doesn't develop a disease? In practical terms, we could, for example, use public money to pay a health fee to an insurance company for every day, a single individual is kept healthy and doesn't develop a disease or doesn't require any other form of acute medical intervention. If the individual becomes sick, 
the insurance company will not receive any further monetary compensation for the medical interventions required to treat the disease of that individual, but they would be obliged to pay for every evidence-based treatment option to return the customer back to health. Once the customer is healthy again, the health fee for that individual will be paid again. In effect, all players in the system are now responsible for keeping their customers healthy and they're incentivized to avoid any unnecessary medical interventions by simply reducing the number of people that eventually become sick. The more healthy people there are, the less the cost to treat the sick will be, and the higher the economic benefit for all parties being involved in keeping these individuals healthy is. This change of the incentive structure shifts now the attention of the complete healthcare system away from providing isolated and singular treatment options towards a holistic view of what is useful for an individual to stay healthy and live long. Now, to effectively preserve health, people will need to be willing to share their health data on a constant basis so that the healthcare system understands early enough if any assistance with regard to the health is needed. Physical examination, monitoring of lifetime health data, as well as genetic sequencing, cardiometabolic profiling, and imaging-based technologies will allow customers to make together with health coaches and general practitioners optimal and science-guided decisions for their diet, their medication, and the physical activity to diminish their unique probability to fall sick of an identified individual high-risk disease. Artificial intelligence-based data analysis and the miniaturization of sensor technologies are already starting to make monitoring of the individual health status possible. Measuring cardiometabolic parameters by devices like this or the detection of circulating tumor DNA in your bloodstream early on after cancer disease onset are only two examples for such monitoring technologies. Take cancer. One of the biggest problems in certain oncological diseases is that a large number of patients is diagnosed too late to allow them to be cured, although the drugs and treatments that could potentially have cured them are already existing today if the disease had only been detected earlier. New technologies allow now, based on a few milliliters of blood, to detect the presence of circulating tumor DNA and thus the presence of cancer early on in a really convenient manner. The impact that this early-stage detection can have may be dramatic. The five-year survival rate for non-small cell lung cancer, when diagnosed at stage one, which is early, is 49%. The same when diagnosed as stage four, which is late, is below 1%. Being potentially able to prevent a large number of deaths by something as simple as a blood test for circulating tumor DNA could make certain cancer types a manageable disease as disease onset can be detected earlier and positive treatment outcomes can likely be increased. In 2012, 50% of all Americans had a single chronic disease, resulting in 86% of the $3 trillion U.S. healthcare budget being spent for treating such chronic diseases. 86%. 
If new technologies allow now to reduce this 86%, why have healthcare systems not reacted and changed already? Well, a redesign of what today is a sick care system into a true healthcare system that focuses on prevention and behavioral changes requires every actor in the system to change. It requires the political willingness to shift budgets and policies towards prevention and health education to design a new set of financial and non-financial incentives. It requires creating a regulatory framework for the gathering, using and sharing of personal health data that's at the same time stringent and sensible. It needs doctors, hospitals, insurers, pharmaceutical and medical companies to reframe their approach. And, most important, it can't happen without the willingness and motivation of individuals to change their lifestyle in a sustained way, to prioritize staying healthy, in addition to opening up for sharing their health data on a constant basis. This change may not come overnight, but by refocusing the incentives within the healthcare industry today to actively keep people healthy, we may not only be able to prevent more diseases in the first place, but we may also be able to detect onset of certain preventable diseases earlier than we do today, which will lead to longer and healthier lives for more people. Most of the technologies that we need to initiate that change are already existing today. But this is not the technology question. It is primarily a question of vision and will. Today's episode is sponsored by Warby Parker, pioneers of a new concept in eyewear. Contemporary eyeglasses that are extremely affordable and fashion-forward, combined with a free home try-on to try out your new frames before you buy. I found the shopping experience to be top-notch. I was really glad, frankly, that Warby Parker came knocking because I've needed a new pair of glasses for a couple of years now. Uh, I started out with their online questionnaire that uh, helps narrow down their selection to just the ones that fit you, both physically and style-wise. From there, you can favorite all the ones you like online and you know ask the people around you who are actually going to have to look at you uh, which ones they like, help you narrow it down to the final five. And this is the best part. They'll ship those five frames to you to try on, get a real feel for them, ask your friends, family, colleagues, and mailman to all weigh in on your new look. And you can keep them for five days, no obligation to purchase, and then use the free prepaid return shipping label to send them back. According to Warby Parker, it's so easy, a dog or cat could do it, so keep an eye on your pets to make sure they don't get carried away ordering eyewear or anything like that. Now, if you, like me, find a pair that you like, the next step is simple. You choose your frame, you add your prescription, and order. Glasses start at $95, including the prescription lenses, which also include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. Plus, for every pair purchased, a pair is distributed to someone in need. To give it a try and to let them know I sent you, visit warbyparker.com slash best to begin your free home try-on experience today. As a bonus, if you have an iPhone 10, you can use the new Find Your Fit feature in the Warby Parker app that uses the iPhone 10's true depth camera to map and measure key facial features and recommend about a dozen Warby Parker frames that are likely to best fit your face. So again, get started today at warbyparker.com slash best. And to make it easy for you, I've included that link in the show notes.
Lacrosse, Wisconsin used to be like everywhere in America, awkward and fearful about death. Couples did not go back and forth about cremation versus burial at the dinner table, like they were talking about which movie to see. Neighbors didn't gossip about the one family on the block that had not planned for its demise. The people of Lacrosse discussed death right now because one guy decided the town needed to be talking about it. Because if they were not talking about it, he was the one who ended up having to do it, have these awkward, painful conversations with everyone. This guy's name is Bud Hammes. He works at the local hospital as a medical ethicist, which basically means Bud was the guy who would get called when someone's dad had a stroke and was being kept alive on machines. Bud would sit down with the family and try to help them figure out what to do next. And every time, he says, the discussion was excruciating. Well, you could see it on, you know, on the face, the anguish, like, oh, you know, I mean, you could just, in, in the comments that they would made, you know, how, what do you think mom would want? I don't know. I, I just, did dad ever say anything to you? I don't know what to do here. And that's why I was called in to help these families at least sort this out as best as they can. Um, the moral distress that these families were suffering was palpable. You could feel it in the room. And that no matter what they decided, they would never have any clarity about whether they made the right decision. The thing that was especially maddening to Bud about these conversations was that they were entirely predictable. Most of the time, the conversation would be about a patient who had been sick for years, who had been coming to the hospital over and over again, sometimes multiple times a week. I found it distressing that we were taking care of patients and not giving them any opportunity uh, to have a voice in their care should they become incapacitated. Take the dialysis center at Gunderson Health Systems, where Bud worked, the hospital. There were 60 people in the dialysis center. Only two of the 60 had living wills or advanced directives that specified if they wanted to be kept alive on machines. And for the people in the dialysis center... This was likely to be a real question, potentially in the near future. So that's where Bud started, in the dialysis center. He started with the nurses. He gave them all training on how to ask every person to complete an advanced directive, how to sit with patients and go through questions like, if I have a stroke, do I want to go on a ventilator or not? If I can't do this or that, do I want to stay on dialysis? So the nurses all got trained. And then a month went by. Not a single nurse asked a single patient. It was just too scary. So Bud asked one brave nurse to be the first, to be the model for all the other nurses and show everybody this was not going to be a big deal. The patient would be open to it. And Bud watched what happened. So the nurse assigned to this responsibility approached the uh, patient and uh, the patient started to cry. And her response was, I don't think I'm ready to have this conversation. So the nurse did the right thing and said, well, that's fine. If you change your mind, let us know, and then we can have the conversation. It didn't seem like a success at that moment, but eventually the patient did come back to the nurse and said she was ready. And other nurses started to be ready, too. They started asking patients. And actually, the other hospital in La Crosse asked Bud to come and work with the nurses there to train people how to talk about end-of-life care. Verona Lockman, a nurse in the general surgery unit at Gunderson, the hospital where Bud works, 
She told me she had to practice saying the words to herself over and over again before she could finally approach a real-life patient. And then she did. And one of the surgeons came up afterwards and said, I don't want you talking, talking about advanced care plan with my patients before they have surgery. Like, it, it's like they're going to die, and I don't want them thinking they're... And it was nothing like that, but a lot of people struggled with that. That, of course, is the whole point. It's difficult to talk about. So the more you talk about it, the more routine the question is, the more comfortable it is to be asked. And in lacrosse, you were asked again and again and again. Um, so, Debbie, you're going to have surgery. Um, and what are you going to have done? Hysterectomy. Yep, that's what we have here, too. And, and who's your doctor? Um, Stevens. Dr. Stevens, okay. Debbie Thurston is in her 30s with red hair, a red face, red sweatshirt. She's not sick, but she will be asked if she wants to fill out an advanced directive here during her pre-op. So have you ever done anything like a, a living will? No, I haven't. No? Okay. Debbie says she's not interested right now. Tomorrow, if she becomes interested, she'll have another opportunity. She'll be asked again when she comes in for her surgery. Debbie actually tells me the last time she had a procedure at the hospital, someone left the paperwork by her bedside. Every, every time I come to the hospital, they, they ask me. <laughs> I just haven't done it. Uh-huh. And what do you think when they ask you about it every time? That's a good thing. I just don't. I like to think I'm young and I'm not going to need it. <laughs> Even though Debbie is saying no right now, she will almost certainly fill out the paperwork before she dies, which hopefully will be many years from now. But if you think about it, 96% of the people who die here have one. Imagine how many more times Debbie will be asked. All that nagging eventually leads to follow through. In lacrosse, even if it takes you until you are actually confronting a life-ending illness to take a look at these questions, it won't be the first time you're considering them. It won't be the first time you're thinking about all the choices you have to make about the way you want to die. Make yourself at home. Okay. Beautiful morning, isn't it? Yeah, it's gorgeous. Cool out there, though, I bet you, huh? Glenn Muhlenkamp is a cheery 81-year-old farmer sitting on his favorite recliner at home, and he's dying. Glenn's prostate cancer has spread to his bones. He's in hospice. A nurse from the hospital, Laura Weedman, is here to help him fill out his advance directive. Glenn's wife, Jenny, is flitting about, showing Laura, the nurse, pictures of every one of her 27 grandkids. And Laura, the nurse, masterfully guides Jenny to a chair next to Glenn to have a conversation Jenny clearly does not want to have. You know, when people have... A, a chronic illness, like you have, sometimes complications can occur. There could be a point where you might not be able to speak for yourself. Jenny, Glenn's wife, is sitting on the edge of her chair, rocking back and forth. Her head is turned sideways, away from Glenn and Laura. Her eyes are locked on a window. And Laura, the nurse, is mostly talking to Glenn, but it's by design that his wife is here, too. It's impossible for her to cover all the scenarios under which Glenn may die, so the more specifics she can get from Glenn, for his wife, Jenny, to hear him say, the better. So Laura, the nurse, starts ticking through some options listed on a stack of paper. She starts, okay, if your cancer spreads and you reach a point where the treatments will extend your life by a few months and the side effects are pretty serious... Would you want them to continue to do all of that, or would you say, no, stop, stop? Okay. If you had a serious complication from your cancer, but you'd probably live through the complication, you would probably not walk again, 
or you might not be able to talk again, what would you choose them to do? Continue to do everything they possibly can for you, or would you say, no, stop? I'd say, stop. Glenn's wife, Jenny's eyes, are still locked on the window. She's still rocking, but she has started silently weeping. Laura, the nurse, puts a hand on Jenny's knee, but forges ahead. Okay, same scenario, she says. You'd survive, but you'd never know who you are. Would you want them to continue to do everything for you, or would you want them to stop? Stop. Because I've seen that where they're just there. They're just there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not for you. No. Jenny, Glenn's wife, actually gets up and walks away at this point. Glenn doesn't stop her, and neither does the nurse, Laura. Have you had enough of this conversation? (laughs) I just had to get up and see what was going on. Jenny looks around, kind of aimlessly surveying the house. And then she mumbles. It's a big house to keep up. In the other room, the nurse and Glenn finish up the plan for the rest of Glenn's life. No machines, no feeding tubes, no ventilator, no CPR. Stop, 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 stop. There are few places where you'd find this kind of conversation happening regularly. And the conversations actually help explain this other salient fact about La Crosse, something I haven't mentioned yet, but is also very unusual. La Crosse, Wisconsin, spends less on health care than any other place in the country. That comes from a group of researchers at Dartmouth College. They study the huge variation in healthcare spending between what Miami spends versus Grand Junction, Colorado. Miami's at the top. La Crosse, Wisconsin is at the very bottom of the list. Of the 306 regions in the Dartmouth data, La Crosse spends less on each person on Medicare than anywhere else in America. That's not only because of these conversations about death, but it's a big part of why. One quarter of healthcare spending is on the last year of life, and planning for death saves money. Because most people are like Glenn. When asked ahead of time about their dying days and how they want things to go down, they say, stop, 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 stop. Here's Jeff Thompson, the CEO of Gunderson Health System, the hospital where Bud Hammis works. It turns out that if you allow patients to choose and direct their care, and that you share that information with their families, then then often they choose a course that is much less expensive than if people just had to guess. But Hammis and Jeff Thompson are panicked that I am going to make it sound like this is why La Crosse has its advanced care program. So let me clearly say here, it is not. In fact, if you're Jeff running a hospital... This doesn't make any sense. Hospitals get paid for doing things. There's a billing code for a hysterectomy, for a hip replacement. There's a billing code for aspirin. There's no billing code for advanced care planning. How do you pay for that program here? Um, Well, I really can't answer that because that that is not a a good uh, sign of a CEO because, of course, we lose money on this program. This program makes no economic sense for anyone taking care of Medicare patients on a fee-for-service basis. So Jeff can't bill for it. It does save money to do this kind of planning, but it saves Medicare money. It saves insurance companies money, not Jeff. One quarter of healthcare spending is on the last year of life. That's spending that goes to hospitals and doctors. For us, we spend money on a program 
that ultimately will decrease our revenue stream. <laughs> that robs you of money later. Right, right. But, but it's clearly the right thing to do. Um, that is a lot of money, though, that you're leaving on the table. Yes, you're right. Jeff says they do it because it's the right thing to do for patients. And frankly, he tells me, I wasn't here at Gunderson when they started doing advanced care planning. But if I tried to take it away now, he says, the community would revolt. This is just how we do things. Still, you can see why most hospital CEOs may find a program they'd have to run for free that would almost assuredly reduce one of the hospital's largest revenue streams. You can see why they might find that unattractive. But still, there must be someone in Washington who would try to push through an idea that is relatively simple to implement and proven to save money, right? This is the thing Congress and president after president has tried to do, reduce healthcare spending. You'd think there'd be someone who would want to make this happen, right? Well, there was. You might remember in 2009, the phrase death panels was in the news a lot. That year, Gunderson, the La Crosse Hospital, helped write something for the health reform bill that would pay people for doing advanced care planning with patients. And this is what happened. It's bureaucrats who will uh, ration care if the bill goes through as Obama wants it to go through. Yes. Governor Sarah Palin warned that the government was going to start rationing care and was going to decide who could get care and who could not. It was wildfire. Our senior's going to be in front of a death panel. Pulling the plug on grandma or denying her care. Sarah Palin has rocked them with that one because she's dead right. They are death panels. It's weird. The fact that end-of-life planning could save money, you'd think that would have popularized the approach in a country where a sixth of the economy is healthcare spending. But in 2009, it was actually probably why it did not become more widespread. It was a bug, not a feature. Healthcare reform passed without the death panels that were not really death panels, whatever death panels actually means. But the law did include financial rewards for hospitals or physician practices that could figure out how to reduce spending on their own. So a lot of them are naturally turning to lacrosse, trying to figure out what they're doing. And they're reaching out to Bud Hammes to ask him, how do we get people to plan for death? We can hardly handle the calls coming in. Bud told me when he first started this in La Crosse in the 1990s in the dialysis center, he thought it'd take a year maybe to get it set up and started in the region, and then maybe a few more years for it to spread throughout the country. 20 years later, Bud is putting off retirement because he's pretty sure this is the moment. This is when it's finally going to happen. may have seen the headlines. Study Medicare for All projected to cost $32.6 trillion, said ABC News. CBS News elaborated, study Medicare for All plan touted by Bernie Sanders would cost $32.6 trillion. 
Medicare for All, a federally funded universal health care plan championed by Senator Bernie Sanders and others, has become a key issue for progressive voters evaluating Democratic Party candidates for the 2008 midterms and the 2020 presidential race. The plan would provide coverage for the 40 million currently uninsured in the U.S., a gap that's estimated to cause tens of thousands of deaths annually. But, as Justin Anderson reports for FAIR.org, it has received no shortage of negative coverage in the media, all revolving around a question unasked in other contexts. How are we going to pay for it? It's in this atmosphere that a new study emerges from Charles Blahouse at the libertarian-leaning Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Blahouse's study projected that Sanders' Medicare for All system, assuming it was enacted in 2022, would cost the federal government $32.6 trillion in excess spending over the course of 10 years. And, as noted, it wasn't just conservative media that leapt on that scary-sounding number. But whether at the National Review or Time magazine, the headlines missed a central point in Blahouse's study. In terms of total, federal, state, and private spending on health care, the Medicare for All plan is projected to cost trillions less than projections of spending under the current U.S. health care system. True, a cursory glance at Blahouse's study wouldn't show that. He obscured his own findings by not displaying the 10-year totals for Medicare for All cost savings in his tables. As Matt Brunig, head of the People's Policy Project, pointed out in Jacobin, adding up all the values for Medicare for All savings from 2022 to 2031 in Table 2 of Blahouse's study shows that enacting the plan would save $2.1 trillion in national health expenditures over that period. It's as if Blahouse saw the results of his data and didn't like them, so he just decided not to publicize them in his table. And outlets like Axios followed his lead. The site's write-up contained the following at the bottom of its worth-noting section. Quote, All told, Medicare for All would actually slightly reduce the total amount we pay for health care. But the plan would increase the share of that cost paid through taxes rather than through insurance premiums or out-of-pocket. Close quote. And there's the rub. Medicare for All would amount to net savings on overall health care spending, besides the evidently ancillary matter of guaranteeing health care coverage for every American. But the Mercatus Center, funded primarily by conservative billionaires Charles and David Koch, and all the publications making a fuss, are much more interested in the conservative boogeyman taxes. In AP's report, Emory professor and former Clinton advisor Kenneth Thorpe notes pointedly, quote, there are going to be a lot of people who will pay more in taxes than they save on premiums, close quote. Those people will certainly be at the top end of the income scale and not the ones currently deciding between going to the doctor and paying the rent. Some publications, largely but not entirely progressive ones, including Common Dreams, Vox, Business Insider, and Vice, did not naively parrot the Marcatus Studies price tag. They pointed out the large cost savings of Medicare for All implicit in the study's findings and the benefits of universal health care coverage from an ethical as well as an economic perspective. But the fact that a single study by a think tank with an anti-tax agenda could so easily frame news coverage on health care shows just how powerful the myth of fiscal responsibility can be.
On the line with us is Wendell Potter. Wendell is a former health insurance executive, the author of Deadly Spin and Nation on the Take, two great books. And his latest project is Tarbell, T-A-R-B-E-L-L dot org, uh, which is a, a website that examines the impact of money in politics on millions of Americans. WendellPotter.com, the website, and of course Tarbell dot org. You can also, dot org. You can also tweet him at Wendell Pot or at Tarbell org. Wendell, welcome back to the program. Uh, you write in this uh, piece over at tarbell.org, one of the reasons I quit my job, uh, you were one of the senior executives at one of the big five health insurance companies. One of the reasons I quit my job was because I could not in good conscience be part of what we in the PR trade referred, referred to as an FUD campaign, one designed to create fear, uncertainty, and doubt about something. My former colleagues and I were very effective creators and implementers of FUD or FUD campaigns. We carried them out whenever any kind of health care reform was being proposed that might lead to shrinking profit margins. Um, you want to speak about that and how the health insurance and the pharmaceutical companies appear to be putting together an alliance to scare the bejesus out of Americans about Medicare for all. Well, they really are. And this is because, um, and I saw this coming because I saw something similar developing uh, 10 years ago when I was still in the insurance industry. Uh, we worked very collaboratively at that time with uh, the hospital, big hospital chains, the for-profit hospital companies, the drug companies, the medical device manufacturers, because the one thing that all of them and the insurers want to try to do is to preserve the status quo in our healthcare system. It's very profitable for all of them. And they know that a Medicare for all type system would threaten profits. Some more than others, of course. Uh, and they don't want that, nor do the shareholders want that. So they teamed up then and they clearly are teaming up now, uh, to do what we did back then, which is to, uh, mount big campaigns, uh, PR and lobbying campaigns, advertising campaigns to get people to fear a single-payer Medicare for all type system. And we're uh, at least I'm beginning to see exactly how this is taking shape. And that's what I'm what I wrote about for that piece you cited. And we at Tarbell are going to be monitoring and writing about on a regular basis to make sure that people are aware what's going on. They're going to be spending enormous sums of money hiring big PR firms uh, and advertising firms to mislead the public. Yeah, and then it's also making its way into political campaign ads. It looks like the new generation of Republican campaign ads are mostly going after Democrats who are in favor of Medicare for all and saying, oh, it's a $32 billion, a trillion dollar expense over the next 10 years, failing to point out that if uh, there's no medical inflation, we would only save $3 trillion over the next 10 years. But if the medical inflation that is expected, that is projected by the U.S. government itself happens, uh, we would be looking at $49 trillion in health care expenses over the next 10 years, compared to $32 yep. trillion if Medicare for All is put into place. They are lying through their teeth, Wendell. How, you know, tell yeah. us about this strategy. You said you see this, this, uh, this strategy emerging. Tell us about it. Yeah, a big part of it is, is using numbers, just like you cited, using very select, it's very selective disclosure of data. Uh, I wrote about this study that was done by this, uh, uh, organization, the so-called think tank called the Mercatus Center. It's gotten a lot of its funding from, uh, the, the Koch brothers and it, uh, had as its lead number, uh, and they knew this that would get headlines that a, a Medicare for all system would cost $32.6 trillion 
it, you know, you had to read even below that to find out they're talking about over 10 years. They do not disclose uh, or uh, consider how much of the status quo, if we stick with the status quo, how much we would be paying in 10 years. And it's going to be extraordinary. Uh, they want to obscure the fact that the current system is just simply not affordable for most Americans, including uh, most American businesses. But this is exactly uh, one of the elements of the FUD campaign. The whole idea is to get people to have second thoughts, to see that number and to be very afraid, uh, when you have a number like that in isolation, people will think, wow, that's more than I ever would have imagined, without knowing uh, that the current system uh, would cost so much more. And, and with a Medicare for All system, obviously, you can bring everyone into coverage. What we're going to be seeing in the absence of that is more and more people falling into the ranks of the uninsured and even more into the ranks of the underinsured. Right. And more and more bankruptcies as a result of healthcare expenses, right. something that doesn't have happen in any other developed country in the world. I mean, exactly. we literally were the only country in the world. I was I was watching an ad on TV over the weekend for the for Danny Thomas's uh, Shriners Hospital uh, or not Shriners Hospital, the uh, St. Jude Hospital, which is, you know, just a wonderful thing, you know, researching cancer in kids and providing free health care to kids. And about halfway through the ad, it suddenly, you know, which is a very emotional ad, you know, showing these wonderful little kids who are, you know, dealing with really harsh chemo. And it suddenly hit me, you know, they're asking for money because we don't have a health care system that provides health care to kids with cancer. How screwed right. up is that? Right. I mean, that that yeah. that St. Jude ad should be the first piece of evidence that this system is 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 nuts. Uh, yeah. How do you? How would you recommend the Democrats' message back against this FUD campaign that your former industry is now launching? You had to fight back in a similar way. Uh, not that you would, would try to mislead people, but you've got to help people understand the real situation that a lot of people are in. And that's one of the things that we're going to be doing at Tarbell is helping people understand this could happen to you. You may think today that you've got good employer-sponsored coverage, but what happens if you're laid off? What happens if you get in a serious accident and can no longer work? What happens if uh, uh, someone you know uh, just can't afford to pay the premiums for a health care policy? Uh, and it happens to people every single day. And uh, so I think you've got to, first of all, anticipate what they're doing, calling them out. And regrettably, there aren't many uh, in the, the, the mainstream media that's paying a bit of attention to this. One of our stories, by the way, this later this week, we'll be looking at all the money that insurers and hospital companies and drug companies are pouring into the campaigns of Democrats to try to elect Democrats that will be friendly to them uh, to help them maintain the status quo. They anticipate that there could be a, a blue wave coming, and they want to ride it. They want to control it as best they can. They want to catch it. And uh, they know that their chances of maintaining the status quo is enhanced if they can put money into the campaign coffers of a lot of these candidates. And the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and other organizations are very complicit in this, And as our reporting will show this week.
there's a common number that's thrown around now. It's, it's become the kind of like new um, kind of hot coffee story, right? The, the, the trope people just want to mindlessly repeat that $32 trillion, $32 trillion, and it costs $32 trillion. How mm-hmm. are you going to count for $32 mm-hmm. trillion? So when, when Randy Bryce, who's uh, challenging Paul Ryan uh, for his seat in Wisconsin, was on CNN, the anchors, they kept repeating the $32 trillion number over and over and over again, $32 trillion, $32 trillion, $32 trillion. It was clear that the anchors were just mindlessly repeating this number that came from the Urban Institute. And it's clear that they had no idea what the details were because the actual additional taxes were, as such were not actually $32 trillion. I think it was like $17 or $18 trillion. When you hear these numbers kind of bandied about and then having guests get scolded on, on cable TV every night, because mm-hmm. this is going to come up more and more and more as, as Harris and others become out in favor of single payer. When they say, where are you going to get the money? And they throw out these absurdly long numbers. Of course, it's over 10 years. But they never mentioned that. Um, how would you respond to that? Uh, it's such a good question. You know, um, you know, one, one thing you, you sometimes hear people say is just, you know, remind people that we're already paying for it. You know, we're already paying more than any other country on the planet for healthcare, vastly more. And so the idea that we have to answer the question, how are you going to pay for it? Is kind of crazy. We're already paying for it and we're paying double what the next closest guy is paying. So if we were to move to a system, like a single payer system, we anticipate that the per capita healthcare expenditures are going to come in line with the rest of the, you know, OECD countries, let's say, roughly fall by half. And so um, we know that we're going to be spending less. We expect that we're going to be spending less. And the, the question is then, you know, well, how do you pay for it, quote unquote, on the tax side? And so, you know, what people have pointed out is, is instead of paying premiums and co-pays and deductibles and all of those things. And, you know, we all, I have a line item on my pay stub. There's a withholding for my health care. My mm-hmm. employer makes a contribution, but I have a withholding. I also have a withholding for FICA. So there's a line that says what's being taken out for, from my payroll for contributions to Social Security and Medicare. So what if instead of that line item saying, you know, my employer has made this deduction in order to make a contribution for health care, I see my the government has made an additional deduction in right. order to make a contribution mm-hmm. they're calling for health care. Should I really care at the end of the day if the two are, you know, swapped line A for line B? I don't think I should care. The question is, are is the government looking at a, a so-called funding program that is going to ultimately save me money or cost me money? And I think it's pretty clear to people who have done the work and, and costed this stuff out, that the expectation is that the average family is going to save four or $5,000 a year on health care mm-hmm. under a single-payer plan. Yeah, it's so hard to convey, especially the Republicans are going to just demagogue on high taxes. Well, yeah, because they get to use the tax line. Exactly, so if, if right. you do indeed raise taxes as part of introducing all of this, and, and by the way, it's not clear to me that that's got to be done. Yeah. Because... If you think of, you know, the purpose of raising taxes is not to get the government dollars from us that they need in order to turn around and spend those dollars. They spend the dollars first, and then if they want to take some away from us for whatever reason, then they tax some away. You say, why does the government want to take dollars away from us? Well, one good reason would be that they're trying to keep the economy at uh, a high level of activity. We're close to full employment, but without inflation. And if Mm -hmm. they don't take away enough dollars... We could spend too much into the economy and get an inflation problem. But, you know, if they take away too many dollars, we can't spend enough to get the economy to full employment. So the right way or the way I think about the tax piece is how much would taxes need to go up 
if we moved from the current healthcare system that we have mm-hmm. to a single payer system. And it's not clear to me that taxes need to go up because we have no idea. Nobody has actually looked at this and said, suppose that, you know, we downsize the insurance industry so much as we transition to a single payer that there are massive job losses and dislocations in the economy. We're going to lose a lot of people who are currently working in the insurance industry, you know, doing other things for healthcare administratively and so forth. Those people aren't going to be doing that work. And that means a drag on GDP. Now, is there going to be enough other economic activity to replace it so that the economy continues to grow? Or might we actually need to cut taxes? Because, you know, this new program is going to be so cost-saving that it's actually going to take demand out of the economy. I think that's possible. We might, in fact, need tax cuts to pay for single-payer. We've just heard clips today, starting with Ring of Fire, talking with the journalist Marshall Allen about systemic wastefulness in the healthcare system intended to drive profits. Then Matthias Mullenbeck gave his TED Talk proposing that we turn our healthcare incentive structure on its head and pay doctors to keep people healthy rather than only paying them when people are sick. Planet Money explained the emotional and fiscal benefits of guided end-of-life planning. Counterspin explained the Koch brothers-backed study that shows single-payer would save the country money on health insurance. The Tom Hartman program spoke with Wendell Potter, a former health insurance executive, about how corporate health care interests are trying to scare people out of universal health care. And finally, we just heard citations needed, talking with Stephanie Kelton, using modern monetary theory to explain just how affordable universal health care really is. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And although we don't have a midterms minute segment in today's show, I'd like to urge you to explore our show notes where we've organized quick links about the upcoming primaries in Delaware on September 6th, New Hampshire on September 11th, and Rhode Island on September 12th. Our notes include spotlights on the races and links to help you support the progressive candidates in all of these primaries, so be sure to check them out. I also want to note that New York is having its state-level office primaries on September 13th, and that will include the Democratic gubernatorial primary race between incumbent Governor Andrew Cuomo and his challenger, Justice Democrat, Cynthia Nixon. Now, to finish up the show, I have uh, one bonus clip for you, actually, to share. This is a clip I found uh, while doing the research for today's show. It it doesn't really fit with the rest of the show. I I wouldn't say it qualifies as best-of-the-left material, but I think it's very instructive and interesting, so I wanted to include it here at the end. Now, when listening to people talk about uh, healthcare, especially those who have been in favor of universal healthcare for a very long time, it's not surprising to come across a handful of people uh, or, or more than a handful of people who will complain about the likes of uh, Vox and Ezra Klein in particular. Um, now, I, I listen to Ezra Klein's podcast. I use clips on the show. I think he has interesting guests. I, I don't really f- follow what he writes. I, I know very little about his personal opinions about things, but apparently he has been a sort of a staunch middle of the road, we should improve on Obamacare and uh, universal health care is sort of pie in the sky. Like 
I, I'm getting that third hand, but uh, the rumor on the street is that that's basically their position. Ezra Klein is sort of the figurehead of that state of mind in the Vox universe and and all the Washington establishment thinking that surrounds it. And an interesting analysis I came across when researching today's show is, is the idea that that kind of thinking, putting that mentality out into the media ethos, actually helps that theory come true. If you put out the idea that universal healthcare is pie in the sky and can never happen, it convinces other people, well, I guess it's probably pie in the sky and it probably won't ever happen, so I guess I won't push for it either. Whereas the reverse can also be true. If you get enough people saying that universal healthcare is totally doable, it convinces more people that it's actually possible, which creates a snowball effect and then it really becomes within the realm of possibility. You know, we've been talking uh, more than once in recent episodes about the Overton window, how it works, what it is, and what moves it, strategies about moving it on purpose. And healthcare right now is clearly the issue where you can watch the Overton window move in real time. So this clip I have for you is from a podcast produced by Vox. To be clear, Ezra Klein is not in this conversation, as far as I can tell or, or remember. Uh, he, he's not in this episode, so he's not the one talking, but someone who is very much in that same vein of thinking is talking. And what he says, as I said, only qualifies as best of the left analysis, but to hear someone who clearly comes from the centrist line of thinking about promoting and preserving Obamacare and, and really putting off the idea of single payer and watching them explain their transition, I think is really interesting and brings a lot of hope, frankly, to people like me who have just been waiting for the rest of the country to catch up to where I've been for years and years. What is the end game on healthcare, right? And once upon a time, we had a world where the end game for mainstream Democrats was like tighten up the screws on the Affordable Care Act, right? Which I think everybody acknowledged had not been like handed down on golden tablets by God, uh, but like they thought was pretty good and like had some flaws that should be addressed. They had passed the bill. They had found out what was in it. They were now going to fix <laughs> right. it. <laughs> if they got congressional majority again, they were going to make some changes. But like basically the idea of subsidized, regulated private health insurance markets was one that they believed in, that they hoped as they improved and made better, it would get bigger and bigger and bigger, be more and more stable and in some long-term trajectory, like take over. Right. And instead of it being a, a small niche for people who didn't have job based insurance in the future, like everybody might have Obamacare. Then you had a, a like a disempowered left group that was like, no, we should expand Medicare and everybody should sign up to it. And he had conservatives and I, I don't know exactly what they thought. Um, <laughs> but they've come at, at least at one point they were going to repeal Obamacare. Right. Then they didn't. Nope. And now they're like they're wailing away at it. And it seems to me that while they have not killed the Affordable Care Act, they have killed centrist Democrats' policy vision. Yeah. Right? Because it's clear that you cannot have as your long-term vision for American health care 
subsidized, regulated private insurance markets if every time there's a Republican president, they're going to deliberately manipulate the regulatory scheme to make it not work. Yeah. Well, this goes back to what Dara was saying about, you know, it's all well and good to leave all this discretion to the federal government about how to implement this program until somebody takes power who is uh, hostile to the program. Right. So, yeah, no, I think that's true. And, and so it does leave us in this strange middle ground where conservatives obviously haven't articulated a health policy vision that they can actually pass. And there are proposals out there about how to try to prop up Obamacare a little more at the margins. But to your point, Matt, I think all of the energy has moved to kind of an entirely different conversation. I've always – something that's kind of crystallized for me over the last year or so of following this is that like Obamacare is almost a law without a constituency right. except for mm-hmm. the – 30 million people. But I, mean, but, I, but I just want to emphasize and of that it's the not insurance companies, which is right. like not a nothing stakeholder. Yeah. Well, but, but I just want to emphasize that it's not just the energy, though, because like part of the dynamic on healthcare as a money issue is like activist driven. Mm. Right. Sometimes people ask, you know, it's like, why did you change your mind? And it's like, well, like the facts changed. Mm-hmm. Right. And like. In my view, as of 2014, it was perfectly reasonable to say, like, we should try to make this work better. And that would make more sense than, like, another huge change. Right. And it's, like, legitimately now not reasonable to have that be your opinion. Right. Because it doesn't work, right? Like, yeah. like Medicare continues to function fine even when Donald Trump is – president and the ACA exchanges don't. Yeah. And like that's a factual. For your reference, that was from the Weeds podcast produced by Vox. Uh, the person doing most of the talking there, I'm fairly certain, was Matthew Iglesias. Just so you know, obviously that clip continues on uh, beyond that point, but uh, that that really got to the, the major point that I, I wanted to get across to you guys. And, I, you know, I promise I, I'm not playing this clip uh, or saying anything I'm saying about how I was ahead of the game compared to these guys. Like, I'm not saying it to gloat in any way. I welcome anyone at any time who wants to agree with me. And frankly, I agree with what he just said in that clip that I think he referenced uh, the year 2014. He said in the year 2014, it was reasonable to say that we should just improve Obamacare and that it was, that, you know, that uh, pushing too far ahead and, and having another major change and switching to single payer at that time would have been destabilizing. I agree with the point he is making. That was a reasonable position to have in 2014. It's not the position I held at the time, but for anyone who did have that position, I could have a very friendly uh, disagreement with them and very much understand where they were coming from, very much understand the concern about destabilizing, understand the concern about the potential for blowback when you try to move things too far too fast and and people, you know, they freak out a little bit when when things start shifting too much. So I agree that was a reasonable position and it is fantastic to hear someone like that say that now it is just simply not reasonable to hold that position anymore primarily because of the facts on the ground, because you can just watch what happens when Republicans get in control of a system, a a set of legislation that is dependent on the government being good actors. This is one of the core reasons why I am in favor of universal programs that can't be tinkered with in the same way. And 
you know, Obamacare was a Rube Goldberg machine. It, it was just screaming to be tinkered with from a million different angles in a million different ways. And when people come in who don't want that system to work, of course, they're going to tinker with it. And uh, I, I think someone referred to uh, the Republicans and Obamacare as playing a game of Jenga, where they just take out piece by piece until the whole thing is ultimately going to collapse. So I, I find that little discussion there really telling, as I said, about the Overton window. Like you can just watch the Overton window shifting, looking at healthcare. It's the clearest example. And, and so the question I have for you guys, cause you know, we, we have a whole range of people who listen to this show. Obviously lots of people have been in favor of single payer for a really long time, but a lot of people I am sure are exactly as he just described people who thought no Obamacare is fine. Let's just shore it up. Let's improve it. Uh, doing any other kind of major change will, will be destabilizing, uh, or it, it's too expensive or it's pie in the sky. It couldn't pass anyways. So don't bother advocating for it. There are lots of very reasonable reasons people could have had for being very doubtful of single payer in the past. And so I am very curious if you are one of those people who was not in favor of single payer, like even if you like the idea in principle, if you just thought, well, I'm not going to push for it because it can't happen, it, you know, it's, it's not going to pass. So let's just try to get what we can get. If you're just a realist, you know, a political pragmatist, and for that reason, you didn't want to push for a single payer. If that was your position and you have shifted, if you are one of the people who has shifted along with the Overton window, part of the snowball that is building as one system, it becomes clear, it cannot be sustained, and all of the energy is shifting to something else that is universal and fundamentally more stable because of that. If you are coming over, I would love to hear from you and just just get your thoughts. As I said, I welcome anyone at any time. No no judgment in any way, but uh, you know whether it's on healthcare or really any other aspect of what could loosely be referred to as the Bernie agenda from 2016. If you're doubtful of any of those things and as as uh, as the window is shifting, if you are shifting, I would love to hear from you. As I said, it's a very exciting moment when the Overton window starts catching up with you. And, and, and frankly, any discussion about single payer or, or people changing their minds just helps that momentum build further. So if, if you're in that camp, I, I would love to hear your thoughts just, just to get some insight into that process, that transition. And, uh, you know, I, this is why I found that clip interesting because he was describing his transition. And, uh, and so if you have sort of a similar story or, or a totally different story, it'd be great to hear. So as always, uh, keep the comments coming in. You can call in at 202-999-3991 to share your story, ask questions, give comments or whatever. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of the left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes 
notes on the blog and likely write on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.